Trevor Rinpoche used to say there are two ways of having an organization, and he called it lids and flowers. He said conventional bureaucracies and organizations are based on the principle of the lid, that depending upon where you are in the hierarchy, there's someone over you who has a lid on you, and there's someone under you that you have a lid on. And this notion of lids is that if anyone tries to express their genuine heart too much, they will be pushed down. It's about power over. Conventional hierarchy, conventional organization, whether it's secular or spiritual or religious, is about power over. He said the hierarchy of an enlightened organization, he called flowers. And he said each flower is different than each other flower. It's kind of like a flower arrangement. Some are much larger, some are much more brilliant, some are much smaller, more humble. He said, but in the space of the mandala, which is what the Tibetans call these organizations, mm -hmm. each flower has its place and the overall atmosphere is such that each flower is being encouraged and cultivated and nourished to its full potential. And so natural hierarchy is that each individual finds their own unique way of expressing within that Dharma world. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episodes of Crazy Wisdom. This interview with Frank Berliner is actually part two of a two-part interview. If you missed the first half, you can simply click onto the Crazy Wisdom show page and find the first half of the interview there. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe to the show, rate and review so people can find the show and we can grow our Crazy Wisdom community. So here is part two with Frank Berliner. This story is about the end of a three-month-long training that I did with him in 1978 called the seminary, Vajradhatu Seminary, mm -hmm. where you study the three yamas of Tibetan Buddhism, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and finally the Vajrayana. And in the Vajrayana, you receive formal Vajrayana transmission from him, and you take, you take the teacher on as your Vajra master. So mm -hmm. it's a very, very profound commitment. And at the very end of the seminary, you receive what's called the pointing out instruction. The pointing out, which is very traditional in Tibet, the, the master points out the nature of the student's mind to the student, and it's done in a formal way. And without going into a lot of detail, he did the pointing out, and my experience of the pointing out, I wondered if I'd missed it. I wasn't sure I'd gotten it. And I remember talking to a couple of other people, they weren't sure they had gotten it either. And I went to bed that night unsure whether I had gotten it. But then the next morning when I woke up, I was experienced a level of peace and almost bliss and a complete absence of anxiety. I mean, it was almost like, you know, a good acid trip, I suppose you mm -hmm. could say. I couldn't manufacture any anxious thoughts, even if I tried. There was plenty of room for them because when seminary was over, we had already had a, an interview where well, I should tell that story next. So I, I'm completely blissed out. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is it. I got the transmission. Fantastic. I couldn't even generate anxiety about what I was going to do next in my life, even though seminary was ending. And I had an interview with him that day. In the interview, I came in. I was completely blissed out. And I sit down. He says, um, I want you to teach more. 
but uh, you need to leave Tale of the Tiger. You need to leave the center where you've been mm. living for the last four years. Mm. And I'm going, leave the center? What am, what am I going to do? The center is my home. And I realized also that I was hoping that he would ask me to be the director of the center at this point. And so I say, well, where am I, where am I going to go? And he says, uh, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he would often say that to a student who was looking for an answer from him. He would kind of shrug his shoulders. He would kind of go, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> and so I said, well, what is your guess? And he said, I think you should follow your coincidences. And then I realized he wasn't going to say any more. And it was time for me to leave. And I'm getting up and he says to me, be careful. Pay attention to the traffic lights. You're a little blissed out right now. You pay attention to the real world because hmm. that's where you're going now. And I won't tell our viewers uh, what following the coincidences led to because that's also in the memoir and mm -hmm. if i tell these stories too fully there'll be nothing left to tell <laughs> but but follow your coincidences mm -hmm. was one of the most powerful uh, pith instructions that he ever gave me and i you know i've relied on it i mean how old was i then i was uh, 33 i was 32 yeah mm -hmm. yeah you know it's 45 years later and i've relied on 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 that uh, very powerful instruction for many of the deci important decisions that I've made in my life. Wow. Uh, so follow your coincidences. But it was also, I wanted to point out, it was about cutting through the, the, the bliss that I was holding onto as kind of my trophy for his pointing out. In other words, his pointing out is that moment when the Vajra master accepts the student into their mandala. Right. So, but I was trying to, I was trying to really make something of it. And then he's telling me, you have to leave your nest. I can't tell you where to go next. It's so interesting. I mean, it's just, it's a reflection of his own life, right? Like he, he was forced <laughs> out of, yeah. yeah, he was forced out of his nest in a very harsh way at a very wow. young age. And as you said, the umbilical cord was cut and he was, he was homeless. He was groundless landing, landing first in northern india and then finding his way to oxford and and then taking root in north america and and yeah. um when i look at his, the body of his work he was just in a constant mode of creation right so he was an artist he was uh, just an exquisite artist dharma art is one of my you know kind of all-time favorite uh, coffee table books recommended to yes, the community. Um, he was an artist he was a he was a teacher he was an author he was a thought leader and and just a lot of different manifestations of of kind of bringing Absolutely. consciousness and beauty into form. Everything that he touched, mm -hmm. he would bring the Dharma into it. Like you say, he, he yeah. touched every field that he engaged in. So yes, yeah. very important. There, there's Thank a really so sweet, a really sweet story in Frank's memoir that I loved, which was Frank's mother uh, entered into a, a flower arranging a cabana contest and he, and, and he says who's who is is this and and helps her kind of prune it and shape it and it's just this really lovely tale of of making art out of you know the mm. thing in front of us and um i think that's that's the whole point right of of engaged buddhism our practice is not to necessarily for most of us to sit and stare at the walls of the cave it's to to move through the world and bring that depth and that um that awareness into all of our interactions so that we are making art out of each moment 
So well said, Luke. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing there, which yeah, is of course. And that crazy wisdom is kind of the ultimate expression of that endless compassionate engagement with the world mm -hmm. and with beings, wherever they are, and meeting them in the moment with complete authenticity. Yeah. Uh, and, and thank you so much for the point you made that he was never asking any of us to do anything that he hadn't done himself a hundred mm -hmm. times. On. And that when I think of him leaving Tibet and crossing the Himalayas, leading 300 Tibetans out of Tibet with the Chinese close behind, people die constantly, either from the cold or being shot. And he's leading that at the age of 19. And I'm freaking out at the age of 33 because he's asking me to leave. He's asking me to leave this meditation center where I've been kind of like in a little Petri dish of developing myself. And he's basically saying to me, okay, it's time for you to grow up and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So hmm. thank you. Thank you for, I feel as we talk how much you have um, studied and absorbed uh, the, the feeling and energy and, and lessons of his life and how they were passed down to his generation of students like myself. So I, I really, I thank you for that. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very moved at, at how much you have uh, engaged and understood about this. Thank you. Yes, of course. Well, you know, there's this very special place on planet Earth that um, means so much to me, and that's it's in Boulder, Colorado. It's a place called Naropa University, which is where I met Frank in the year 2000, early 2000, January 2000. And um, it's a place where I, you know, I had studied meditation a little bit and I had kind of dabbled in yoga and I knew that I I hadn't quite found my thing yet in life, hadn't quite clicked in. And, and I landed in this just fantastic incubator for consciousness and exploration called Naropa <laughs> and, and landed in Frank's class, I think in the, the first week and started to really understand, you know, Trumpa and this lineage. And just at the time, um, it was quite a, a thriving place of different thoughts. We had a Roshi there. We had a Rabbi Zalman Schechter there. We had um, all of these yeah. various oh. edgy, innovative psychotherapists. <laughs> I used to go up to uh, Ken Wilber's house and do a Naropa study group with Ken Wilber. And it was just a really marvelous time to explore all the edges that we could push around consciousness and human evolution and liberating the human heart. Um, so what a remarkable training ground for spinning out bodhisattvas. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, yes. Frank, I wanted to go back in time a little bit. You know, you and I have kind of a similar path in a certain way. You weren't always this kind of student of Trumpa that then became his own, your own teacher in your own right. In your youth, you had um, a life of kind of privilege and, and you could have done a lot of different things. You went to Yale and you had options to, you know, I don't know, I'm guessing study medicine or, or law or right. my all father, the things, right? My father was a doctor. And he, right. Yeah, he wanted me to, I tell you, he either wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or the president of the United States. As far as uh -huh. he was concerned, there were no other options. Right. So that, and of course, in my memoir, you know, as you said, yeah. it's not just a memoir of my relationship with Trump Rinpoche, but also my relationship with my father and how my relationship with Trump Rinpoche kind of transformed that, healed it, clarified it, enabled me to let go of the weight of the expectations that my father always had for me. So mm -hmm. yes, that's the life I had before I met him. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was part of what I was trying to escape when I went to Vermont for four years. There's one yeah. story. Can I tell this very quick story? Of course, yes. One story, 
there's one story in the memoir where, you know, my wife and I have been living up in this hired man's house for $50 a month in Northern Vermont for about two years. And I already, we had already learned how to you know, do these big gardens. She would grow flowers. I would grow vegetables. We would eat the vegetables during the summer. We had corn and tomatoes and all these other things. And my parents finally came up to, to visit. And we put out, we ate outside. It was the summer. And we covered the table with all the stuff that we had grown. And I was so proud of myself because my parents were really good gardeners themselves. I thought my parents would be very impressed. And my mother was, of course. And we're sitting down and we're feasting. And, and, and my father uh, says to me, uh, you seem to be taking early retirement here. My heart sinks, you know, as only he could do it. To me. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, man, here I thought you were going to tell me what a great thing this is. You know, I'm so proud of you know you that you, you grew all this food and this is wonderful. You have a really great life here. No, no, he was basically saying, you seem to be taking early retirement. It's not going to work. And when are you going to get a real job? And uh, so that's what I that's what I was dealing with. That's what I was dealing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's quite a quite a bit of pressure in that in that kind of life of privilege. I know. Uh, oh, oh, yes, yes, right? yes. Yeah. There, yeah. There, there's like a there's like a squeeze that happens t- to a certain path around prestige and influence and power, oh. right? And oh, it's, you know, it's very, very, very demanding and very, very burdensome. And, yes. and Yale, Yale is the Yale's the epitome of that. Of course, the absolute epitome. There's a story that you tell in the in the memoir, and one that I remember from our time back at Naropa that really is is kind of analogous to an example of a, a story of my own life, which is I kind of had the University of Missouri version of what you had, which was I was 18 years old and I decided to join a fraternity as a way of making friends. And I, yeah. I asked all the fraternities that I was that I was kind of exploring, like, do you haze? Because I was not going to subject myself to that. Right. 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 And and they all said, no, 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 we don't. And um, I get through the the pledge period and into the initiation week. And within an hour, we're in deep, like, you know, being barked at. And the senior that was a brother in this fraternity had just proposed to his girlfriend, his longtime girlfriend. She said, yes. And what do these young men do? They take him out back. They strip him down to his underwear. They tie him to a board and they dump all the condiments and mop water on him as a way of celebrating this. And then they call her over and say, we need to see you and, and present him to her. And I thought, this is how we're going to treat a healthy relationship. This is how we're going to treat someone that is actually in love. And, and an hour later, I find myself being stood up on a table, asked to recite the history of the fraternity and all its brothers. And I was fumbling and not, not at all engaged in this process. And one of the guys says, it looks like you don't really want to be here. Do you really, do you really want to be here? And in a moment, I had a flash in my mind and I saw the tape kind of play forward of the next two to three to five to 10 years of what my life would be like if I stayed in this thing. And I didn't have the language of it at that time, but the, the karmic force of that decision and what that would squeeze me into. And I said, no, I don't want to be here. And I got off the table and I walked out of the house and I never walked back in. And, you know, for me, this was one of the first moments where I felt like I was making a choice in my life based on consciousness and depth and a connection to meaning and something deeper that I could feel was out there. I hadn't quite 
I didn't quite know what it was yet, but I knew there was something more than this. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and a connection, connection, connection to your own innate uh, compassion too, you know, because you could feel this is what is going on here is a violation. Right. It's, it's a violation of the basic goodness of these beings, these people. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and you knew it and you thought, I cannot be an accomplice. Exactly. Two, exactly. Two years, three years, five years. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And you got a knock on the door in the middle of the night, if I remember correctly, right? Uh, a little different, but uh, the Yale version of perhaps one of these things you've read about a bit in your memoir, the skull and bones knock. Oh, skull and bones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was tapped by skull and bones and I, I had heard things about skull and bones that terrified me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when they tapped me, these two, two goons in tuxedos standing at my door, you know, and I opened my door and they're standing there and they, without, you know, without a cracking any kind of expression, they go skull and bones, accept or reject. And, you know, I just looked at them and I just said, no, I don't think so. And then they just turn around and leave, like, you know, like, like ch- the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace or something. There's no expression. But anyway, but I joined another one, which mm-hmm. I shouldn't have. <laughs> that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And then I think you may recall the story of, you know, in the last two or three weeks before I graduated from Yale, my fraternity brothers gave me uh, a thousand micrograms of LSD, mm-hmm. which I had never had before. And they didn't tell me what it was. and that. That that was a life changing experience, and I, I won't go into more detail. But mm-hmm. it's like, like it's almost like Yale kicked me in the ass on the way out because mm-hmm. I had done the best I could to be the best Yalee ever, and I pretty much succeeded mm-hmm. um, until until the shadow of all of it manifested in this encounter with my secret society brothers and this massive overdose of uh, of LSD. There's a direct line, even though it took seven years, from that experience at Yale to meeting Chagin Trumpa. No question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, all, all of this is in the memoirs. So. Yes, of course. You know, much of our conversation, I've framed this around sharing your stories with our audience. I have a very selfish question for you. For the community out there, this one's squarely for Luke. One of the teachings... <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> So one of the teachings that has lived on in me in a very deep way since my time with you and at Naropa is the teaching of Drala. You know, as it lives in me these days Mm. is I can create a sense of wonderment and magic in my life by how I organize space around me, right? There's an external Drala of creating beauty and, and order at times or meticulousness or um, even moments of intentional chaos that will evoke a sense or a state of being in my own heart and mind. So taking great pride in bringing beauty to the actual physical space around yes, me as, as, a, yes. as, a, as a path of kind of devotion, devotion to love, devotion to consciousness, devotion to depth, right? And it's been yeah, yeah, a m- many years since I've, you know, heard, <laughs> heard kind of what is, what is the core essence of the teaching of Drala. And since I have you here, I just have to sure. ask you, like, can you refresh my memory? Yeah, like, how does, yeah. Drala, how does Drala, like, what is the teaching around Drala and how does it live in you? Sure. Well, let me say, first of all, that your impulse, profound impulse 
to, to create beauty in situations around you is kind of the inspiration of Drala. Mm-hmm. That being said, the, the existence or manifestation of Drala, how we create beautiful environments around us, like the flower arrangements, or just, just, mm-hmm. just you know, putting, cleaning up our house and putting flowers on the table invites, you could say, the Tibetans would say, invites the Dralas. So we're, we, we can create an atmosphere which invites the Dralas, but the, 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 the real existence or the, the, the depth of the existence of the Dralas is in the entire natural world, beyond anything that we, uh, anything that we create or anything that we arrange. It's beyond arranging. And the way that Chogyam Trumpa taught Drala was that he said that when, through meditation, as you gradually and at times abruptly uh, cut through your identification with a conceptual world, with your thoughts and your stories and everything else that you keep uh, endlessly talking to yourself about is who you are. That when through meditation you're able to cut through that, both gradually and abruptly, you are introduced to the world as it is in a much more direct way. And then you realize that this is the world that your teacher lives in all the time. It's a world that goes beyond the thinking mind and is a direct awareness of the phenomenal world, of the mind, and of the energies of the world. And so the world begins to speak to you uh, as if, you know, as if trees and flowers and rocks and rivers and waterfalls and mountains are their own beings. And so in Tibet, you know, the religion before Trumpa Rinpa, before Padmasambhava in Tibet was this notion of that each of these uh, natural phenomena had an, a spirit inside of it that spoke directly to people. Mm-hmm. And so the Drala came out of that. But what teachers like Chogyam Trumpa brought to it was an understanding that the Drala is not, doesn't exist separately from the mind. And that the human human awareness and the power and beauty of the phenomenal world, through medit- through training and meditation, the barrier between those two it completely goes away, and you're in touch with the energy of the phenomena uh, directly. There's no intermediary, and that's called drama. And you know, when you're in the presence of a teacher like Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, he would we would be with him and we'd be doing ceremonies sometimes outside, and he would just talk about the dralas are here. He would say, The dralas are pleased. The dralas are pleased that you have made these offerings. Dralas are pleased that you have acknowledged the possibility of their existence. And that they want to meet you. They're waiting to meet you. They can't wait to meet you. And then he would talk about how. It's because of the dralas that the human world is protected from the aggression and degradation of its own self-destructive, mm-hmm. its own self-destructive habits. In other words, the, the dralas are the only thing that stand between us and destroying ourselves. And and he often talked about how if we offend them enough, they will leave. Mm-hmm. And if they leave, we will no longer have protection. So this may sound kind of like woo-woo and magical or even somewhat theistic, but he didn't mean it that way. He meant literally that unless uh, human beings can make contact with that deeper sense of what you described as wonder, appreciation of beauty, uh, the power and magnificence of the natural world, we're going to continue to destroy it. Because we, you know, in all the environmental work in the world, without that intuitive connection and love of the sacredness of the world. We can engineer it as much as we want, but it's not going to solve the problem. Hmm. 
Oh, wow. Now that was a very long answer. Did, yeah. I, did I address? Did I address you? Absolutely. I mean, I think the the thing for me that I've come to realize <clears throat> is magic and awe are a choice that I make. They are a practice in and of themselves, right? Absolutely. I and and the deeper I go into my practices, the more uh, a sense of wonderment is available to me. Yes. And you know, there's there's you know there's and it's not wonderment as in kind of necessarily believing in kind of fairy tale wonderment there's wonderment in seeing the exquisite beauty of the moment in front of me of the world around me of <laughs> the heart that is uh you know aching in front of me or within me and finding just the the exquisite tenderness of these moments and um that is a choice that we all make um it's a it's a choice absolutely mm-hmm. it's a choice it's a choice whether we're going to turn toward the fullness of the present moment of nowness or whether we're going to turn away and continue to live inside our self-created cocoon of an imaginary world based on our thoughts mm-hmm. and based on the stories we tell ourselves. So yes, you're in, and Rinpoche would say, Trumper would say, it's a choice of either being a warrior or turning away from being a warrior. Yeah. So warrior here means the bravery to make the choice of acknowledging the magic and beauty. Yes, that's it. That's it. Yeah. You've learned very well, Grasshopper. Very, very well. <laughs> well. Thank you. I've had, yeah, I've had some marvelous teachers. I think, uh, yeah, and you yeah. were one of the the first and most important to me. So thank you, thank you very for sweet. your, thank your, you, your, and, uh, and you have, and you have, you, you've taken it and you're making it your own, which is the whole purpose. That's what's called lineage. Yeah, that's what's called lineage. We none of the teachings of Dharma are ever supposed to be a monument to any particular person. Mm-hmm. They are in the completely in the public domain. And, and I, I'm, I'm very moved and very happy to see how you are carrying it forward. And I feel the genuineness of it and the heartfelt quality. And I, I salute you. I, I thank you, Frank. Yeah, I, I, um, I do feel that connection, you know, through you and to Trumpa and the other teachers and people that I've followed. And there's a way in which over time they become, I think the teachings just become part of who we are, right? We just start, it's just like a way of, of being in the same sense in lineage. There's, we, we sit in lineages that have some kind of complicated history. And I just, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get your perspective because it's something I've struggled with, especially over the last 10 years to see, Yes, yes. You know, yes. some of the things that have happened in our Shambhala community yeah. with, you know, even yeah, just Trump's yeah. legacy is it's complicated. The Sakyong's legacy is highly complicated. Reggie Ray's lineage is complicated. My own other teachers that I've that I've spent time with, there's just um we're in an era where things have changed and the relationship to the guru is is much different than it was in the 80s and the 90s, even in the early 2000s mm-hmm. when I met you and i just i just am so curious how you hold that like how do you relate to the trickier stickier parts of um teachers that have caused harm to others and have you know where there is examples of abuse and just wondering how you relate to that sure well it's a many it's a many layered question um <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I would say, and, 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 and in saying this, I'm sort of echoing my father's wisdom, uh, which, and his skepticism, 
which was always a part of his relationship with me as I became a, a, a student of spirituality. Mm-hmm. My father loathed organized religion. He, mm-hmm. he loathed it. Um, and he, he felt that it was a, you know, a, um, an insult to human intelligence um, to kind of adopt a particular kind of dogma, join a particular group, um, and kind of subscribe to all of its uh, all of its ideas, all of its uh, ceremonies, all of its rituals, and so I acknowledge even now that the choice to become part of um, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist uh, lineage was uh, taking on something that had the potential for corruption, and in mm. Tibet was corrupted by many many teachers, mm. uh, and that the only safeguard was the authenticity of the teacher. And, and you know, Trumper Rinpoche would say to us as we were trying to figure out whether to be his students, he said, you have to test the teacher again and again. He said, you shouldn't take anything on blind faith. Mm-hmm. You have to be very skeptical. You have to be cynical. And you have to test the teacher again and again. And if you decide the teacher is genuine, then you make a commitment and you shouldn't do it until then. So he would say, don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. I think that uh, human beings have a tremendous tendency toward gullibility, toward a kind of herd instinct, toward the security and even the sense of superiority that comes from belonging to a particular group. Um, and, that, and that in the West, that's a, huge, that's a huge pitfall. When a spiritual teacher is not uh, fully realized or even deeply realized, but at the same time takes on the responsibility of a large organization and many, many, many students, the possibilities for it uh, falling apart are endless. They're endless. Shambhala has been no exception in a way that, you know, personally uh, has broken my heart. Mm, Me too. Um, It's broken my heart. And I will say without, you know, without any kind of false pride that I, I saw that happening before it collapsed. And, and it, it caused me to start teaching on my own for a very long time now. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to put, a, I, I had to deal with a lot of criticism for doing that. Um, I had to deal with a lot of criticism for going on my, on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so all I can speak about now is my own experience. I know mm-hmm. about, I mean, Reggie, you mentioned Reggie. Reggie was one of my close friends. I mean, mm-hmm. we were Dharma brothers. I can only speak to my own experience, which is that I have no illusions about the level of realization that I could kind of play with this sort of crazy wisdom energy. What I have tried to do in teaching the Dharma over the last 12, 15 years, since I've really been on my own, um, is to always remember uh, loving kindness first and always try to uh, honor that in, in every student. As I explained to you before, I'm more and more interested in mentoring students to teach on their own mm-hmm. and, and to take the, the, uh, the focus off of me. As I get older, I, I don't want that burden, number one. And number two, it's just inappropriate. It's unseemly. It's much more um, rewarding inwardly to help other people blossom. Mm-hmm. Trevor Rinpoche used to say there are two ways of having an organization. And he called it lids and flowers. Have you ever heard this? The lids and the flowers? I have not, no. Okay, this is a good one. He said conventional bureaucracies and organizations are based on the principle of the lid. That depending upon where you are in the hierarchy, there's someone over you who has a lid on you, and there's someone under you that you have a lid on. Mm-hmm. 
And this notion of lids is that if anyone, if anyone tries to express their, I like your fraternity, my secret society, if anyone tries to express their genuine heart too much, they will be, they will be pushed down. And so it becomes, it's about power over. Mm-hmm. Conventional hierarchy, conventional organization, whether it's secular or spiritual or religious, is about power over. He said the, the hierarchy of an enlightened organization, he called flowers. And he said each flower is different than each other flower. It's kind of like a flower arrangement. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are much larger, some are much more brilliant, some are much smaller, more humble. He said, but in the space of the mandala, which is what the Tibetans call these organizations. Mm -hmm. Each flower has its place. The overall atmosphere is such that each flower is being um, encouraged and cultivated and nourished to to its full potential. And so natural hierarchy is that each individual finds their own unique way of expressing within the world, within that Dharma world. So I I like lids and flowers. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's such a, um, it's such a, a, potent kind of uh, vision for what a human system can be right like this is i think that it it really i think that it really is you know and Mm -hmm. i i like to think of my sangha now as a little greenhouse Mm -hmm. uh and you know i've got i'm I'm the one who's closest to the faucet that's got this little misting thing that you know the flowers are out there and the mist is 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 covering them and they're growing very beautifully and this again brings me back to my father Mm -hmm. my father grew orchids and he and my mother grew them together. And uh, he was a world-renowned orchid grower. And at the end of his life, he was much more interested in orchids than he was in medicine. Uh, and I, I always remember the experience of going down to his greenhouse, which he went down to up until the very end of his life, even when he was uh, terminally ill. He'd go down there every day, and he would water his uh, orchids. And I just remember the experience of walking into that greenhouse with all the brilliant colors and my father was just he, he, the joy that he was experiencing in, in nurturing all these flowers are so beautiful. And the mist in the greenhouse, you know, I'll never forget it. It's, mm. it's probably the memory of my dad that I want, uh, after all the painful memories, is the one that I hold on to. Mm. Um, and, and I feel that that's the way a spiritual community can develop uh, as flowers rather than lids. And it can only happen if the, the main teacher. Does, does not become a lid. Um, and he, he, despite how controversial he was, how outrageous many of the things he did were, I always experienced him as wanting each of his students to develop to their fullest capacity and that in any way that he could nurture that, whether it was by subduing what needs to be subdued, destroying what needs to be destroyed, or caring for whatever needs his care, he, he, he always did it. And yeah. no one no one, there will be no revisionist history for me about my experiences of my teacher. So beautiful and clear. Um, and Frank, I've seen you do this so many times, right? So, you know, you talk about in your book about your work in in the inner city of New York and finding, really meeting yeah. these young people in their world and telling their stories of their life, not from some oh. ancient textbook, but from their stories. And I absolutely experienced that in your classroom of finding 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 a path for each of us to 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 clarify our voice and find our you know our unique expression of the dharma and and you've you've carried this on and what that 
you know, my experience of you around this is just a deep trustability. And I think that's what the world needs so much right now is trustworthy, especially men who are living life, life from their heart and from the depths of their consciousness. So, um, thank you for this. Thank you, Luke. Luke, no one has ever said it in quite that way to me before. And I, uh, I would rather not uh, tear up, so I'm going to hold it back. But I, I do feel like uh, shedding happy tears. I'm very yeah. touched. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And if people Thank want you. to, yes, my dear friend, if people want to uh, find you and uh, come join you, you mentioned you have this uh, Sunday song, Sangha. Is this open, Sunday, to, Sunday, yeah. open to the public or how, what's, if people oh, yes, want to... it's open. It's open. It, it's growing kind of by auspicious coincidence. It's growing by people following their coincidences. They find me if they're meant to. You know, anybody who wants to contact me by by my email, who you know who watches this and is somehow interested mm-hmm. in in coming part of it, uh, you know, my email. You will. You know, my email is frankberliner at me dot com. They just have to send me uh, an email and say hi. You know, I saw this and interested in finding out about Sunday Sangha and I'll send them the zoom link and they can come and check it out. Great. Well, so we'll put the, uh, we'll put Frank's email in the show notes. So for people that want to connect with Frank and check out his Sunday Sangha and other teachings, you can do that. The book is falling in love with a Buddha. And um, I just highly they recommend can, it. They can order that. They can order that on my website. People can order that on my website. Directly on Frank's is, website for that, which is yeah. what? Frankberliner.com. Yes. Well, uh, my dear friend, mentor, teacher, uh, it's so good to have this conversation with you and thank you for sharing your wisdom, sharing your heart and, uh, just for, for your time today. Thank you, Frank. Look, I I can't believe what a magnificent man you've grown up to be. Thank you so much. This has been a complete pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy.